listeners, this is your host Sadia Khan with an intriguing, training and significant episode for you today. So as you know, Immigrantly has showcased artists, politicians, entrepreneurs, writers and many others. Wow, I didn't even realize that. We recognize diverse voices are not only multicultural but multidisciplinary. Because of this commitment, we are getting down with science today. Yes, science. Now, as you know, the current behind all our episodes this season has been this four-letter interesting word, love. We would not be doing the human experience justice if we did not talk about the complexities of partner relationships, even the not-so-healthy parts. I'm pausing here to let you know that today we are covering some heavy topics like interpersonal conflict, gender-based violence, loneliness and more. Please check in with yourself to make sure you are in a safe mindset and space to participate in this conversation. Immigrant women are uniquely impacted upon domestic violence. Battered immigrants married to U.S. citizens often fear deportation or losing custody of their children, so they avoid reporting or seeking help for domestic violence. They often have language barriers that are significant. Their ability to be able to use the transportation system and the fear that their husbands have control over them and will report them if they would go to the police. Someone who is suffering from emotional domestic violence abuse. Signs of those cases can be a partner threatening to call ICE, threatening to harm them if they're working under the table. One time I was heading to my sister's house and when he arrived home, he told me, if you're not back in 15 minutes, I will call the police and said that you kidnapped my son because you have no rights. Many of them are in different situations where they are dependent on the spouse for everything. And if the spouse turns out to be abusive, they are in that continued violence relationship. They are not aware of resources that exist in the U.S. Our today's guest is Dr. Bushra Sabri. Wearing a litany of degrees, she teaches at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing and is also a recognized expert in the field of exposure to violence and psychosocial outcomes caused by experiencing health and inequities among minority and immigrant women. She currently leads It's We Women Plus, a research study for immigrant women's health, safety and empowerment funded by the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. Underlying all of this work is Dr. Bushra Sabri's fierce commitment to health equity. We talked about implicit assumptions about pain, pre- and post-migration stresses, trauma, and the human body, and how all this can manifest internally and interpersonally. It was such a provocative conversation. So pause and take stock of what it means when we say this healthcare system must do better for all of us. And I believe it will be better through advocates like Dr. Sabri. 
so let's get started. So Dr. Sabri, I am so thrilled to have you on to speak to matters of immigrant experience in the context of health. So welcome to Immigrantly. Thank you for having me. I'm going to certainly defer to you for expert knowledge, but I am also really looking forward to having this conversation as two immigrant women, right, who've seen and felt the complications of our healthcare system at least in my mind, our biological and psychological traits aren't just intrinsic, right? They are not just encoded. They are shaped by the environment. And what I really like about your work is that it's at the intersection of epidemics of violence and health disparities in immigrant populations, something that we have not covered on Immigrantly, believe it or not. I'll begin by asking you to explain a little bit about the series, the questions and communities you're engaging with, and what does your work basically entail? In terms of theories, most of my work draws from the socio-ecological or biopsychosocial perspectives, which includes the social determinants of health as to how certain contexts and environments place individuals at risk for violence or influence the ability to access care or be safe and healthy and make healthy choices and how all of these factors contribute to health disparities. And that holistic perspective is where I draw from when I work with survivors. My interest in violence goes back long when I was in India, part of the Women's Studies Center. But I started work here in the U.S. when I had the opportunity to work with diverse groups of women in my postdoctoral fellowship. These were African-American, African-Caribbean women. I had opportunity to do some work with indigenous women also. And I did this initial study with South Asian immigrant women Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And so I found working with my U.S.-based minority populations and then working with immigrant population, I saw that there were some unique issues not only just first generation, but second generation immigrant women, they had some unique barriers they were facing. The big piece was lack of support, for example, from your own family. So there were some of the things that sparked my interest. I had this big project where I started working with diverse groups. You know, we, we did some work on cultural adaptation of risk assessment instrument for immigrant women. And I had the opportunity to work with Latina, African-born, uh, and then Asian women. So after that work, now we're currently, what I'm engaged in, we're doing testing a technology-based safety planning intervention. It's a national-level study throughout the U.S. Uh, testing this intervention with diverse groups of immigrant women, which includes online text and phone intervention. I just want to stop you here and I want to expand the conversation a bit in terms of unique risk factors that you've talked about, right? So why are immigrant women at risk for intimate partner violence? I assume you're referring to intimate partner violence, right? Yes. So the women are at risk because of multiple factors. One is the immigration status. 
many of them are in different situations where they have language barriers they they are dependent on the spouse for everything and if the spouse turns out to be abusive they are in that continued violence relationship and then they don't they are not aware of resources that exist in the US so there there are a lot of different factors that play a role that place women at risk and you know their stresses and in the family too their stresses of immigration related stress and there's stress related to adapting to a different culture different environment you bring up such an important point because most of the time when we think about immigration and when we think about people coming into the US the idea or the narrative that's most of the time fed is this american dream right but what we don't talk about most often is the individual emotional painful issues that are compounded by past trauma or by lack of social support and other family dynamics as a result of moving to a foreign land because as you said there are so many unknowns when anyone moves from one place to another but i wonder when we think about immigrant women what does empowerment look like in those situations when they don't have access to all the resources that you're talking about empowerment looks like being you know independent being independent with independent i mean they're educated they have access to resources they need for healthcare as well as safety they know where to get help where they can go they have a strong social support network to support them and just you know being able on their own to improve their lives and in different ways being able to make use of opportunities that exist in the US without any barriers what is the first step how do they access those resources because as you mentioned most of those women may not be educated they may not know the language they may not have the resources they may be dependent on their spouses um for their visa status to stay in the united states so if there's a woman listening right now to our podcast who knows somebody who's going through this this traumatic experience what is the first step they need to take first of all there should be more and more awareness in the community for example community is aware there is some kind of you know culturally specific resource that exists everywhere like we see in different states and different localities there are many you know resources that exist for women can you elaborate on that what kind of resources are we referring to here like there's language for example some women have language barriers some women for example and we see like in our work uh, there there are some shelters that women are not comfortable going to those shelters but the first step for them is to reach out to help like tell a trusted source and also like look up i think this is limited because not all women have access to internet but there are domestic violence hotline there are things like that but many women who don't have access it becomes more and more challenging where they start with a friend or like who can you know connect them with another friend so i think like going through a trusted source and you know who can then link them to the appropriate resource would be the the next step 
to know how does its we women plus your national research project fit into this puzzle so the it's we women plus project is designed to intervene with immigrant women who are in abusive relationships and provide them the help they need what we are looking at is that over time participating in this intervention does it enhance their safety improves their mental health and leads to their empowerment so with this intervention that was developed based on our initial work of cultural adaptation and you know the interviews with immigrant women and with the providers who serve immigrant women we've done a lot of work all these years to develop this intervention so, so the benefit is that this will be a great resource especially because not many women go in or are not comfortable or don't have transportation they they face numerous barriers to access in person services so this this would be a resource for them that they could access at any location where if there is a friend's house in their home at night you know when the partner is not there so there's something that and it's not just they would get resource that is only like about their relationship they could get resource about any other need like housing you know the financial or immigration and things like that so they they get diverse resources based on what their priorities and needs are it seems like your project or your study is mostly for women who have access to technology and who are relatively more educated right so it's targeting a specific demographic is that right in terms of like access to technology yes it is but i would also say that in the us we've seen among immigrants that access to technology has grown a lot and people use phones because this is not just a computer it's like smartphone driven and lot of immigrant women talk to their families back home using a phone so uh, not to say that women don't face barriers but we for those women we do like talk to them and discuss uh, brainstorm options where they can use like a friend you know they can go to a library they can go to another place to access a computer or like share take phone like borrow a phone from a friend or somewhere so that they can you know uh, benefit from this intervention um and and in terms of like language uh, literacy is a big concern and that is always like a big issue and so um we did see, we do see like some women who Who, who are who have literacy issues that they face some challenge so we've in our studies done different things like audio you know um like whenever they're like using that audio option for listening to the interview and responding to questions as well as what what we've done is that um for language we've translated but right now in this study we have not translated in other languages we have it in english and spanish currently we are working on arabic translation but translation is another method translating that those resources um but i would say women who face like challenges like you're talking about you know literacy not having access um they're they're like um advocates you know 
I think this is not like something that would really, you know, um, that they could benefit them from their own until they get some kind of help or, you know, the team with assistance. Is there a specific ethnic, cultural, demographic that stands out in this Dr. Bushra that is disproportionately being impacted by exposure to violence? We cannot, we haven't like studied like what the prevalence is because it's um, a national level study. We have the CDC survey that goes out, you know, for the, uh, that has tested, but but based on different community-based samples, we've seen like there's the intimate partner violence has been really, really high in different groups, which includes Black, Hispanics, and Asians. So it's, it's hard to say that, you know, this group has higher rate than other groups. How much of cultural conditioning plays a role in women's hesitance to report violence, at least coming from South Asian culture? I know there is this notion of, you know, just stick it out. It's okay. Make it work, you know, as women in our marriages, in different relationships. How much role does that play into how women approach this problem or at least recognize it? as an issue it plays a big role because like there is so much stigma about uh, they are experiencing violence they want to put like that good face everything is okay in my relationship so not many women are comfortable talking about it they're very private so it it does play a huge role but things change if uh, women are more acculturated they are more knowledgeable you know they have they have a good social support network and so they feel more comfortable talking to uh, women like it depends depends on their exposure level but it's just like it's, it's such so much of a private matter that sometimes you know it, it's not an easy thing to have to like in my work we have to like really really assure confidentiality and tell women that this is for their own benefit. We we have like this is not shared with anyone. But like we we have this, you know, we have to like um, go out of a way to really really you know make them comfortable to disclose. So I want to take a step back and I want to ask you to define violence and what are some of the early signs of abuse. It can take many forms, like it can be physical, it can be sexual violence. People in our culture sometimes don't think in marital relationships, it is sexual violence is violence. Hmm. So everyone did, people define it differently. There is psychological abuse. So it's basically like the where, you know, there's imbalance of power in, the, in a relationship and there is a strong desire to control and the partner use different tactics to humiliate the partner and, you know, control the partner in different ways, which can take escalate over time. And it started with psychological verbal abuse, but that's the early signs. And it, it goes over time, you know, where it takes the form of physical. It escalates and there have been studies that show it escalates over time because sometimes people think that will, the person would improve. But it is, it's just... Um, it gets worse and worse. So violence can take, like I said, many physical, sexual, 
if um, psychological or emotional abuse verbal abuse it can be economic abuse sometimes hmm. so there are different forms of violence people experience is something that that is causing you harm mentally and physically you know so you are in a violent relationship it's of is affecting you as a person you're feeling that it's affecting your health and well-being then that's a red flag in your relationship this episode is brought to you by the muslim voices project at indiana university the muslim voices project provides a platform for amplifying diverse local regional and global muslim voices and works to critically dismantle islamophobic discourse and representation find them online at muslimvoices.indiana.edu and on twitter at muslim voices i want to pivot a little and bring in another component that may be attributing or contributing to making things worse right so when i think about my experience as an immigrant woman in some instances it may be different from other immigrant women for many reasons one being financial privileges right so in situations of seeking care i am fortunate to be insured i can speak the language i have access to resources technology that other immigrant women may not have so within immigrant communities if we look at different health disparities they may be basically predicated on one's socioeconomic status as well right so in other words are you finding that exposure to violence is more prevalent in certain economic stratas i would say it's not limited to one social economic strata like it's it's we see that violence affects individuals from all socio economic groups but those who belong to low socio economic strata have increased exposure to violence we also see um and and there have been studies that have shown that low socio economic status is associated with enhanced exposure to violence and the reason i could say is that when we talk about socio economic status it's not just income it's education right. it's you know where these people stand in terms of social status social class you know they have and what kind of quality of life they have um the what what opportunities or privileges they have in life so all this impact their ability to be healthy and safe and we we see that you know those who belong to ethnic minority or marginalized groups are more likely to be classified you know in in that area that they live in poverty they have low education they have limited access to resources which again like put them at big risk for exposure to violence and we with the statistics we see that they face the worst health consequences of violence when we are talking about health disparities one thing that has been talked about a lot is also biases that exist within the health system itself right so biases of health providers and experts now 
I feel like a lot of what health experts and health providers approach different people is a function or a product of their environment and their education. So right now, a salient issue of care is that pain is perceived and diagnosed very differently depending on the color of the patient's skin, right? Or how seriously a patient is taken is also dependent on their skin color. We see numerous studies that have shown that white women are more likely to receive appropriate pain medication than black women who have undergone the same procedure or physical outcome, right? So I wonder if this racial disparity also infiltrates the health system's treatment of individuals experiencing domestic violence. There is, you know, in terms of like what we see that now there is increased awareness of healthcare disparities, even though we may not be an ideal situation where we have like completely eliminated this unthinking discrimination in the system or where we provide care for individuals who, who, who need care such as survivors. And we see that there are some conversations on how implicit bias is one of the factors that can contribute to disparities and what strategies can address bias. So there are ongoing conversations at different levels. And we see in our work too, we discuss that there's increased awareness, like with my papers, I always highlight how we can be culturally competent, what things we need to do to provide equitable care to everyone. Like in my training as a social worker, I've been part of discussions on things like understand where your, you know, woman comes from, like be aware of your own biases when working with someone, you know. So so these kind of things that I see and in the programs uh, providers have spoken with, they also like talk in those terms. And so, so I would say that we we are not like perfect, but hmm. there is you know we're we're moving there. Have you seen any improvements, practical steps on the part of institutions to address these implicit biases and hold medical professionals accountable? Like, are there any tangible, practical steps that are being taken beyond having conversations? We see that our school is very much focused and emphasized diversity inclusion in our work with the students and when students go to community to provide care. So they are trained in different areas. It's not just conversation, but training, you know, providing that kind of training to the students so that, you know, as a next step. So our faculty is also working, doing a lot of work in the community. And so so it's just not, you know, it's not that it's just like a classroom thing. We also implement it in different ways in the medical professionals or edu- people who are solely involved in education. We have a community program. So everything they are taught and we're like building, doing it more and more. There's a big push that, you know, we're, we're, we're like people are looking at the curriculum. How can, how more trainings can be organized to faculty so that they can train the next generation when they provide care. Do you think it also makes a difference if healthcare professionals are from diverse backgrounds, cultural and ethnic, because they may have a better understanding of somebody else's lived experience? Yes, of course, because that is important to bring people from 
different cultural backgrounds on the table. Uh, cultural sense of training in that cultural sensitivity, cultural awareness, you know, uh, there's a thing called cultural humility. So when, if, if it's not possible, like to have, to include everyone from different culture, it's also important to, you know, how to train yourself to get, you know, to be aware, even though, you know, people are, people cannot become fully competent but being aware of those differences and how they play a role in patient care. Dr. Bushra, also I'm curious to know, how do we have these conversations? How do we engage in conversations and practical steps around combating violence or exposure to violence for women in immigrant communities without demonizing those communities or villainizing those communities? Because that's something that really happens and can happen anywhere, right? I mean, domestic violence is a common problem across different communities, whether it's U.S.-born white women or immigrant communities, non-immigrant, indigenous. It is a worldwide problem. So I wouldn't say that domestic violence in itself is limited to one particular form of community. So there's important to be aware I would say engaging key people, like if uh, for that education piece or an awareness piece, we need to engage significant people from the community. So build like trust within the community, you know, get community buy-in from within the community and engage them in any kind of initiative. So, so that it doesn't like people don't feel like if we come out, you know, it's going to demonize them or like something. So everything should be on the table, everybody, like people from different backgrounds, communities are on the table. And also maybe focusing on the causes, right? So we've talked about um, economic hardships. We've talked about lack of support when people move from another country. It's something that we hardly talk about. For me, when I moved to the U.S. almost 20 years ago, I felt so alienated and I was so depressed the first couple of years, despite the fact that I could speak the language fluently, I'm educated, I could basically navigate the space and yet I felt so disoriented and we do not have systems and structures to help people transition into a new place, a foreign land, because it takes time and that can play a huge role into how stressful it becomes for individuals who are moving here to adjust in a new country, right? Yes, it becomes harder. It's, it's a very, very difficult. I've been there also right. like when you move to a new country. I think there's certain cultural differences are the one thing that your everything changes. It is just like you're in a different world. Right. That, you know, your food habits, you, the shops you are around, you know, the, the buildings, the structures and the support systems you have and nobody is speaking your language. They're very limited people who are speaking your language. And then you all of a sudden you are entirely, you know, you leave your family, friends behind and you are in a totally new environment where you have to adjust and learn their way code switching all the time right so from one language to another from one cultural conditioning to another it's an ongoing process and it's not easy for anyone I cannot imagine the experiences of 
folks who come here who do not know the language it must be so hard and in a way we let them down we don't have support system in the us to help them or walk them through yeah and they've been like increased uh, women have identified the need to that there should be kind kind of orientation from the get go so that women are aware just connect them you know so that they know how to do where what where resource what resources against you know things like that sometimes women come you know on a dependent visa and they don't even get an opportunity to be part of those orientation because i've had you know someone tell me that she was she didn't even know she came here she didn't even know how to ride a bus she was just totally like in her home with the abuser not knowing what to do where to go wow yeah i mean i'm not surprised though how can we be engaged citizens and stand up against domestic violence what should we do if we suspect a friend is in a toxic relationship or even if we think we are in a toxic relationship responsibility like engaged citizens starts from home so what we're teaching our children how we are bringing up children especially in in the car culture you know where it's very like there's a patriarchal norms there there are certain kinds of norms that continue to perpetuate violence against women so i would say that addressing those norms early on with children that do those gender inequitable norms so we start everything from home from our surroundings starting small like being able to say that it's not okay that's not acceptable the violence is going on and i mean i wouldn't say like because we are all at different stages of our lives you know we some people do different things some people can be more active in campaigns at the community level speaking up against dv or you know being part of all the conversations and things like that and educating the community but those who cannot they can at least start small within their homes within their neighborhood because socialization also plays a huge role and when we suspect a friend in a toxic relationship i think it's important to be supportive and emotionally accessible and available to the friend listen to her or to him remind that they are not alone tell them um, not like being a blaming mode but tell them that's not their fault because sometimes people are hesitant to disclose when they they feel like they will be judged you know people will think something is wrong with them so it's very important to appear non judgmental provide them options when we talk about leaving and all that allow them to make decisions on their own because our goal is to empower them so that they can make the right choices we provide education we provide all the options support is ultimately up to them so they are the expert on their lives when we realize we are ourselves in that situation do whatever you can to address it get help starting from a trusted source you are comfortable with because you know sometimes like i said you know a lot of women they the informal sources of help are the first thing they go to rather than going to a police going to a domestic violence shelter going to any other kind of professional so if they feel like they need to talk to someone they trust start there and then try to build a strong social support network you know if the things go really bad then then there is someone they can get 
help. There are a lot of hotlines, domestic violence hotline that can connect people with different resources in the area. And many immigrant women don't feel comfortable calling the police. So it's just always like a, it's not that if they call a hotline that they would be linked. Always they have to call the police or something. Calling the police is always a choice that women have. They don't have to call the police if they don't want to because um, with immigrant population, sometimes, you know, there's a fear that they can be deported or, you know, if or something like if they, there's a certain scenario or police is, because pe- pe- women have had mixed findings, mixed experiences with police. Uh, so there are professionals who are, who can be like, really like work with your choices. They're trained professionals that could help, you know. So walk us through the process. If a woman accesses this online, is there a website they go to? Yes, they go to a website. It's wewomenplus.org. It's all one word. It's We Women Plus. And then they click on the link, see if you are eligible. And it takes them to a series of questions that they answer. Hmm. And if they're eligible, then our team contact them to validate whether this is a real participant. And then they, uh, they do the survey and they go through the intervention. And they are paid $40 for the time. And then, you know, we follow up, do a follow-up at three, six, and 12 months to see whether there has been any improvement. The women who don't experience any improvement at three months, we give them an intense version of the intervention, which is like text messaging intervention and the phone intervention, like two phone calls they receive in addition to this online. When you say intervention, what does intervention look like? It's kind of like a technology-driven care. It asks them a series of questions and then it assesses. It also assesses their risk for homicide because we've seen like foreign-born women have been at high risk for homicide in the U.S. Because in my prior studies, like they have been like the high, being foreign-born was a significant risk factor for being killed by a partner. So it, and so we assess risk for future violence in the relationship as well as homicide. And then it takes them, um, it based, and then it asks about what the needs are because not, you know, leaving is not an option for women. So basically like if a relationship is a priority, other is a priority. So based on what the needs are, it provides them a tailored safety plan and a list of resources that they need. But if the risk factor is really high, is it a matter of choice then for them to leave or is there a way to convince them to leave? It just tells them that you are really at high risk. The system tells them it's their choice. We don't want to like force our thoughts on them. It's their choice, what they think. And so we do encourage them to connect with a domestic violence advocate Hmm. Or, you know, who's in the community who can actually like work with these women who are really, really at high risk and do like a more intense safety planning. But it's ultimately on them that they reach out for help. And are there any particular resources that you can share with us as we wrap up this interview in addition to We Women Plus? Yeah, I mean, there's a national domestic violence hotline. And, um, and there is, uh, if some, somebody's like facing, um, like a mental health, you know, some 
someone wants to talk to a mental health professional, there's a crisis text line that people can text or you know call. Um, and then so so if you don't know resource specific to the area, if you call the national line, they always like connect you. They could look up and connect you with resource in your specific area. Um, yeah, and I've been like part of the, I was part of the crisis center where um, when I was in Iowa. So we, we always like connected, we always had a list whenever people call in, like whether it was a domestic violence survivor or somebody need housing. So there was always like, you know, information about resources available that we could tell people who are calling, you know. So these organizations have some, you know, available information that they can connect you with. Thank you, Dr. Pusha. This was so good. Thank you for your time and thank you for all the information. And we'll try to link up a few resources in our show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really hope this conversation was useful. If you want to check out resources that Dr. Sabri shared with us on the episode, be sure to go to our show notes. Until next time, when we explore another iteration of love and relationships. Take care. Thank you.